you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 8. We're continuing for over the next few months, just kind of walking through verse by verse in Matthew. Last week, we started talking about this section of Matthew, which is just some kind of, it almost feels like um, really staccato stories of miracles uh, that are happening here in this, in this gospel. Um, but we talked about last week that miracles are, are not some spiritual magic trick by which Jesus uses to demonstrate his power as if it's like some like Spider-Man proven he's Spider-Man by crawling around on the wall. That, that's not what Jesus is doing. But that these miracles are actually demonstrations of what Jesus had taught. They're demonstrations of the kingdom of heaven breaking into the kingdom of earth. And it's showing us how Jesus was not just a teacher, but he actually did. That was the type of authority he had. So last week we looked at the story of Jesus healing the leper. And we talked about how Jesus has compassion beyond any cultural norm or taboo. And there's a pattern here in these next few chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's a little hard to catch for us in some ways, um, but it's nine quick stories of Jesus putting on display the power of God's kingdom and demonstrating uh, the very thing he taught about in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, followed by little short calls to follow him. So, in fact, I'll show you, this is a picture that the Bible Project made, and it really kind of shows you the breakdown. We miss this because in our English translations, it's a lot harder to see the kind of direction that Matthew's going. But if you break it down, you can look at where Jesus will do three healings, the leper, today we'll talk about the centurion's servant, and then Peter's sick mother, and then he's going to give a little call to follow him. That's going to be followed by another three stories of the Jesus calming the stormy seas, uh, casting out demons within men, and then the paralyzed man, followed by Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector, and then there's three other stories. And that just kind of helps you to see that organization, because each one of these three sections of miracles are all really kind of communicating the main point. So the question is, what is the first kind of section, these first three miracles, what's the main point of these three? And in each one of these three stories are all about Jesus bridging gaps. So last week, Jesus bridges the gap between clean and unclean uh, with the leper and what's taboo and what's not taboo in that culture. Today, it's going to be bridging the gap between Gentile and Jew. And what that means in the next week, it's bridging the gap between male and female. And so all of that's at play here. But using this middle story specifically today, I really want to look at how intentionally living like Jesus means bridging gaps. That, that's the whole focus of today. Intentionally living like Jesus means bridging gaps. When I was in college, um, uh, one of my good friends that was older than me had given me an old mountain bike he had. And so uh, right across the street from where I went to university, there were mountain bike trails. And I got really big into mountain biking. Like every day after class, I would go out, I would bike. Um, but I'd have these friends that would be like, Philip, I'd love to go bike with you, but I, didn't, I don't have a bike. Can, can I go? And I was like, well, I mean, you can run behind the bike, I guess. Like, I don't know how fun that's going to be. Um, so finally, I decided I had this really old bike back home that I had been kind of my bike growing up as a kid. It was a purple mongoose. You guys know what mongoose is? that still a bike brand? Um, anyways, so I decided that I would go home one weekend and I would bring this little purple bike back with me so that if anybody, one of my friends or whatever, said that they wanted to come ride trails, I had an extra bike to, to ride. Now, you can call me naive, and I probably am. I get it. I, I tend to just think the entire world is nice and good, and there's no one that's ever going to do harm to anybody. And I get it. That's a problem, but that's just kind of what I suffer from. Um, but I went to school on a Christian campus. Like, 
we would go to math class and my statistics professor would like thank God for organi- organization in numbers. Like that was, we would go to English class and we would read a psalm together before we started English class. So I just assumed like I'm at a Christian campus. I don't have to lock my bike up. Like no one's going to steal. Everyone loves Jesus here. Of course they do. Except for one day when I went to take my bike and a buddy biking, I went out to get my bike and guess what was not present? My bike. It wasn't there just gone. So months go by, never seen my bike, and all of a sudden, I'm passing by Fraternity Row on my campus, and right outside of the uh, SAE house, that was the fraternity, I see this bike that's a lot of the same shape that my bike is, but it's been, or was, but it's been spray-painted gold. So I walk over, and I look at it, and there, underneath the gold spray paint, I can see the faint word mongoose made out, and I went, that's my bike. And ever since then, I have a really bad taste in my mouth for people that are pledged or a part of the SAE fraternity. I've always, like, like, no joke, like, I see that because they stole my bike. Like, how dare they steal my bike and take that away? And that really hasn't caused any problems in my life, except for uh, recently, we were on, David and I were on campus kind of uh, tabling and trying to talk to students, and I struck up a conversation with a guy and realized halfway through that he had an SAE shirt on. Now, what am I supposed to do about that? Like, I already know he's going to go steal some innocent freshman's bike. Like, do I call him on that? Like, what do I do? So my whole life, you know, he seemed like a really nice guy. But we all know he's going to steal someone's bike. Do you understand Like, there's a gap between me and anyone? So if you're an SAE, I'm sorry, we have a gap. So if you want to get me a purple mongoose, we can bridge that back. And No, not at all, right? Do you guys have those types of stories? I can't go back to that business after the way they treated me. There's a gap there now. Uh, Really, I can't, that that neighbor, we don't interact because there's a gap there. But here's the other problem. You know, there's gap between individuals and entities and individuals and individuals. But that gets even more complicated when we see and look at and highlight the gaps between groups of people. Because that's all over the place. There's generational gaps. Uh, Kids these days, they don't know how to write a check or mail a letter or change a tire. Our whole society is doomed. Okay, well, old people today don't even know how to work the basics of a computer, much less understand the complexities of the modern financial crisis on young people, and yet they somehow keep getting elected to Congress. And, like, that's what we're doing. Just young and butting heads all the time. Or we talk about political gaps. All these far right-wing nuts are just racist and angry and power-hungry to pocket more money, and every one of them is horrible. Well, all these far-left socialists, they don't have a clue how the world works, and they think they're entitled to everything, and they can't even make a phone call without having anxiety, and the whole lot of them are deluded. Welcome. Do you feel that in our world? Do you see these gaps? Is it just me? Because it's like everywhere I look. Family gaps, racial gaps, economic gaps. But for all of these gaps that exist in our world, I would argue that none of them even come close to the gap that Jesus encounters right here in Matthew chapter 8. So let me kick into this. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and is in terrible agony. Jesus said to him, am I to come heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. 
I tell you that many will come from the east and the west to share at the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very moment. So let's just talk through this passage, just kind of line by line here and and see what Matthew's writing for us. Verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now that word centurion, it makes a lot of sense to us in our English. It's a very good English translation of the Roman word. Uh, But let me just at least set it up in context for you because it at least brings that life to life a little bit more. The Greek word for this is uh, hekaton arches. It's a lot of syllables in in a word, but it's a compound word. So it's the Greek word hekaton, which is the Greek word for a hundred. And arches, which is where we get like leader, art, you know, top, that type of thing. So leader of a hundred. You understand why we translated this centurion. Leader of a hundred. That's what makes sense. So in this context, it, it seems obvious, but what did this guy do? He was a Roman soldier that was the leader over the squadron or whatever of legion of 80 to 100 soldiers stationed in Capernaum. And just to keep going right down that lane of obvious... This guy is not a member of God's chosen people. Pretty simple to make that clarification, right? He is a Gentile. He is a pagan. And not only is he a Gentile, but this this particular centurion, this soldier, he is the epitome of everything the Jewish people resented about the Romans. I mean, his mere presence is a daily reminder that they actually don't get to live as a free people, but they live under the tyranny of a pagan emperor. An emperor that keeps promising them peace and prosperity, but every time you turn around, he's finding something new to tax them on. And this Gentile, this centurion, he is the key leader in Capernaum to ensure that the emperor gets those taxes he asks for. So every time you haul in a load of fish, here's this man and his squadron saying, hey, we get that much fish off the top. You have to give it to us. Every time you make a sell in the marketplace, he's there to say, how much did you make today? You owe the Roman government 40% of that. And then he would pocket an extra bit off the top of it. Every single time that you went to draw water from one of the local wells, he would probably charge you to draw water out of that well because this is how Rome got their money. This is the peace and prosperity that they offered. In fact, uh, there's even some historical data to suggest that when a Roman legion took occupation of a town, they'd often go into the nicest area, the nicest homes in the town. They would run out the rich. They would take up residence in those homes, and that would cascade down so the rich would go to the next people and take their homes and to the point that it just kind of took the already impoverished people and kicked them out into homelessness on the outskirts of the city. This is just what they would do. Um, here's a book from the 400 uh, kind of A.D., that was a Roman history book uh, that says this, talking about how the Roman army functioned. It says, whenever the Romans entered a town or city in an enemy country, the first thing they attended to was the security of the public buildings and the gates, city gates, which they immediately occupied with a garrison. They provided for common safety while they pursued the operations of the campaign. Now, you can tell this is written by a Roman, so it's kind of biased towards the Roman side of things. Here's what that means. When the Roman legion would come in, They would walk outside the town and they would threaten to kill everybody until the leadership of the town came out and negotiated. And usually the negotiation went like, hey, you're going to give us rights to all your water, everything you own, all the public buildings that you have. We're then going to charge people to use them. Oh, and if you don't cooperate, we'll kill you. So how do you want to negotiate? This is the Pax Romana, 
This is the Roman peace. It goes, if you just trust in the emperor, we'll bring you peace and prosperity. Also, if you don't, we'll break your kneecaps. This is the soldier that is overseeing all of this in Capernaum. He is the leader. That level of gap, I mean, as a Jewish person living in that town, taken over by Romans, I think even given all the gaps that surround our culture, it's really, really hard for us to understand that. The best way I could think is like if some foreign country invaded and they got to the point where they got to Portales and they set up occupation in Portales to start their siege against Texas. I don't know. That's a bad decision, but whatever. Let's just say they do that. So they set up their occupation here in town. And then every, they turn off the water to everyone's house. So if you wanted water, you have to go to them and pay money to get water from them. They restrict how much you can travel on roads. And they set up guard posts to pre- prevent all of that. That emotion that you would have towards those people that so ruined your life. Like, I don't even like the guy that checks my receipt when I walk out of Walmart. How much more for that? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? That level of gap is the cultural reality of which what Jesus is dealing with here. Because this guy, the head of a hundred soldiers set to keep the peace, comes up to Jesus and he says this in verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and in terrible agony. I think the key word here is this word Lord. Now for us the problem is we almost only ever use the word Lord in reference to religious realities. We just don't use the word Lord outside of the church or in fact, the only time I could actually think of it uh, is when we use the word landlord. That's, that's the only time we use the word Lord outside of the church. Do you understand what I mean by that? And, and even when we use the word landlord, like that doesn't have a positive light anymore. It tends to be like the guy that paints over your light socket because he's just trying to get the job done and doesn't listen to what you have to say. So, so Lord doesn't really do a great job with conveying what the Roman soldier is getting at. It's the Greek word kurios, and it's a term of respect. It's how you refer to someone in a position over you. So you might use the word master, you might use the word sir, all of that is possible. Um, But even that, I think, I was thinking about this a lot this week, how we have become such an anti-authoritative, like, culture that we don't even use the word sir as, like, it's just a generic term we use when we don't know someone's name. Excuse me, sir, you dropped this. Like, that's it. But for this context, it is a statement of authoritative respect which is ridiculous because this Greek carries the very clear tone that this tippy-top Roman soldier goes to a Jewish peasant-turned-rabbi and says, excuse me, sir, excuse me, one in authority over me, and he asks Jesus to heal his servant. Verse 7, Jesus responds by saying, am I to come heal him? Now, some of you may have um, a little footnote there that says, I will come and heal him. Some of you might just in your Bibles have not stated as a question, but as a statement, okay, I'm going to come heal him. This phrase in Greek is notoriously difficult to, to kind of not translate, but to interpret in a lot of ways. In fact, there's a lot of different ways. It could just be this statement of calm compassion. Okay, I'm going to head over there and heal him. It could be a response out of that authority. Okay, I'll, I'll make time for you. Let's go heal him. But my, my favorite interpretation is one that is uh, awkward surprise. That Jesus just responds to this out of awkward surprise. So, so it might read something along the lines of, uh, excuse me, sir, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and he's in terrible condition. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you want me to come to your house? 
That's the one I kind of like to go with. Now, the Bible doesn't tell me that's for sure. I can't say that's for certain. I don't have anything other than just thinking contextually of what might be going on here. But I think that's a possibility because Jewish people did not enter the house of Gentiles. Gentile people didn't typically want Jewish people in their house. There was too much political unrest. There's too much purity law to consider. This Roman centurion knows the culture around him well enough that he knows better than to invite this Jewish rabbi of all people into his house. So I like to think that Jesus really calls this into question, that Jesus is just acknowledging the absurdity of what's going on in this situation, that really, centurion, you want me to come over your house? Do you understand how crazy you sound right now in this culture? But the centurion seems to, and I think the centurion seems to respond to that style of reaction in verse 8 when he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I mean, what does that mean? I'm not worthy. I don't deserve that. This guy has the authoritative status standard to not only ask Jesus over, but actually to demand Jesus comes over to his house. Roman centurions, Roman soldiers, they didn't care about Jewish purity law. There are so many stories where Roman soldiers would just waltz into the temple without doing any of the purity rituals because they didn't care. There are Jewish writings from the Mishnah that talk about how frustrated Jewish people were that the Roman soldiers would come into town and they would set up Roman paraphernalia and icons and idols within the towns that they saw as sacrilegious. So what actually seems to be happening here in verse 8 is that this centurion seems to be responding out of an extension of his respect to Jesus. So instead of using his authority over Jesus, he submits his authority under Jesus and says, hey, I understand the culture. I understand that I don't even deserve you to have you to come into my house. But I also understand the authority you have, Jesus. It's kind of like mine, verse 9. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion looks at the stories and the rumors surrounding Jesus and presumes that just as he has authority over all the soldiers in his garrison, Jesus seems to have some sort of authority over body and well-being and time and space in some ways. And so he says, look, Jesus, I don't need you to be at my house. I just need you to help me. And look at how Jesus responds. Hearing this, verse 10, Jesus was amazed. And he talks to his followers. We'll come back to that, but jump down to verse 13. And so Jesus tells the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus responds to the centurion's belief and heals the very enemy of Israel. It's so easy for, us, easy for us to read this and say like, oh yeah, it's just another really incredible moment where Jesus, his power's put on display and he heals a paralyzed man. Wow, yay Jesus. And that's a good response. But if we stop there, we miss the historical and cultural context of everything that Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is bridging some monumental gaps. I mean, Jesus is bridging gaps of ethnicity in a culture where Romans thought Jewish people were just another people to be conquered, oppressed, and utilized for the prosperity of Rome. In a culture where Jewish people thought the Roman Empire were evil, militant bullies against the God, uh, their God-given authority to worship freely, Jesus bridges a gap. He bridges a gap of authority. Now, I understand that in our 2,000-year-old now kind of refined theological view of Jesus, we know him to be fully God and, and him to have full authority. But just leave it in this context for a little bit. There is a massive 
authoritative gap between this centurion and between this rabbi. And yet somehow the person of Jesus brings respect to both sides. And then there's this gap between expectation and reality. This is exactly what Jesus talks about, not in just how he reacts to the centurion, but what he tells his followers when he sees the centurion's faith. In verse 10, he looks at the centurion and he says, he's amazed by it. Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Jesus just commended the faith of a polytheistic pagan over the faith of God's chosen people. The people that would quote the Shema every day, the people that followed kosher law to a T, the people that did everything the way the Torah told them to do it. And Jesus looks at everything the Jewish people does, and then he looks at this pagan Roman centurion that was militant and oppressive to them, and he goes, I've not seen anybody that's got faith like this guy and all of these people. You understand that Jesus was being a little bit offensive here? And if you don't think that's offensive, look at the next verse. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you got to understand that a banquet feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was this allegorical way of talking about the afterlife and what we might call heaven, the, the eternity of heaven. It's kind of the way, the way we might say, uh, one of these days when I walk on those streets of gold, one of these days when I walk through that pearly gate, first century Jewish person might have said, one of these days when I sat down at the banquet table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to. That, that's kind of the way they were talking about it. It was a reference pulled directly from Isaiah 25, which says uh, things like, the Lord of armies will prepare uh, for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. He will swallow up the burial shroud. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord will wipe away the tears from every face. It's the classic text that's pointing to what the, the eternity for the redeemed look like. But what the Jewish people had done is they had kind of wiped that phrase, we'll prepare for all peoples, and they had instead layered over it the patriarchs. So it's not this banquet for all peoples. It's actually a banquet for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And only those who are a part of that heritage will be able to go and participate in that banquet with them. In effect, the banquet was limited to those who have Jewish heritage, not those evil pagan Gentiles that persecuted and oppressed them. You know, not only would those people not be invited to this banquet, but, but those pagan Gentiles, they would be thrown outside of the kingdom into this outer darkness of suffering. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Because he says, oh, actually, I tell you, it's not the Jewish people. It's those from the east and the west. Every people, all peoples that come to that. And then he keeps going. Verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom, meaning those people that belong to the Jewish nation, will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see why some of the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus? It's not that hard to understand. But this is the vision Jesus has for the world. It's directly in line with the trajectory of the Old Testament prophets and the promise to Abraham that the Jewish nation was never God's chosen people so that they could feel high and mighty over all the rest of the peoples of the world, that they were intentionally chosen by God to be the means by which God would redeem the whole world, including those militant pagan Roman Gentiles. 
So Jesus goes about performing miracles, not as some spiritual magic trick, but as documented proof that what he taught perfectly lined up with what he did as he bridges the gap between Jewish and Roman, between Israel and the centurion. And was he successful? Did, did what Jesus do work? I'm going to hit this really fast, but I, I want you to just trace through with me a little bit of a New Testament theme for about 30 years. So granted, it's, it's not exactly a speedy process, but at the launch of the early church in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit infiltrates the Jewish people. Shortly after that, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Samaritan people, and we see the birth of this church and some great stuff happening. But then we get to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we find the story of another case, another centurion, this time his name is Cornelius, that the Bible says in Acts chapter 10 is actually a man who feared God. Now I understand it's a long shot. I understand the text doesn't really imply or tell us this. But the question is, how on earth does this Roman centurion, this pagan-raised Roman, become a God-fearer? And I don't know. But might it have something to do with the stories he could have heard from another Roman centurion, a fellow soldier servant being healed by this Jewish rabbi? May that had an effect on him. And while I can't say it for certain, the story goes on because God calls Peter to go into Cornelius' household. And Peter even notes that even though it's forbidden for a Jewish man to enter the house of a Gentile, this time he doesn't just stand outside. Peter actually goes into the centurion's house house and do you know what happens peter preaches a very similar sermon to the one he preached at pentecost and the same thing that happened at pentecost happens on cornelius's house the spirit falls on gentile people this is unheard of in roman or in jewish worldview and thought but it's what happened and this is kind of the the spark that ignites the launching of planting churches all throughout gentile cities that's led by the apostle paul one of those stories happens then in Acts chapter 16. And long story short, Paul plants this church in Philippi. He and his partner Silas end up getting thrown in jail. But through a divine earthquake and an encounter with a Roman jailer, oh, who, by the way, because this was a Roman city, good chance is that this jailer, can you guess what his occupation was? A Roman soldier. That, that he was actually part of this same exact people. That Roman, the jailer actually gets saved. He becomes a part of this church in Philippi. And then some 30 years later, when Paul is writing a letter back to the church in Philippi, as he's concluding his letter in Philippians chapter 4, he writes this. And don't miss how incredibly amazing this is. He's concluding the letter and he says, All the saints send you greetings. Note this. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, for us, that means little to nothing. But I'm telling you, if you could have read this in first century Jewish people, you would have had people gasp. We can't have people in saints in Caesar's household. There can't be saints in Caesar's household. Those people totally stand against what God has done in this world. And Jesus looks at it and says, no, 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 because I bridged that gap. That that person in Caesar's household, that centurion leading a legion of Roman army and officers, they're actually just as much welcome into this kingdom. Because this is what the gospel offers. 
This is the gospel Jesus came not only to preach, but to put on display that God's plan of redemption would not just be about who your parents are or what your lineage is or how much money you make, but by faith in a Jewish rabbi that bridged gaps, ethnic gaps, cultural gaps, authoritative gaps, because he actually bridged the one gap no one could cross. That's the gap between our sin and God. That's the gap that Jesus bridged, that bridges all other gaps. That at the gospel, Jesus came and he lives a perfect life. Then he takes that perfect life and he gives it up on a cross so that us who are sinful might be forgiven of our sins, set free, and restored back to God. And I'm telling you, whatever gap you see is the most concerning gap in this world, political, whatever, generational, none of it comes close to the gap of your sin in eternity. Because you cannot, nobody can bridge the gap between sin and eternity. But that's exactly what Jesus does. That whoever would put their faith in him might experience eternal life. They would be forgiven of their sins. So what does this mean for us? Two things, again, in the exact same pattern as last week. Number one, if you don't know that Jesus bridges gaps, if you don't know that Jesus has set you free from your sin, then you can come know that today. You, like the Roman centurion, can put your faith in Jesus and see Jesus do an incredible miracle in restoring your life and forgiving your sins. That's available to any one of you here today. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, it's available. If you already know that, then what this means, if we are going to live intentionally like Jesus, it means we have to be a church that intentionally bridges gaps. Because there are gaps all around us. Do you understand the crazy generational gap in the church today? Have you ever just taken time to think through that? And I'm not trying to be critical or rude or mean to any capacity, but, but to some extent, this is going to sound so critical, but don't let me be too critical. But to some extent, the way church planning has come to work today is that there are all these churches that, that they're on the older generation and they're not being effective reaching the younger generation. So all we're going to do is we're going to plant this younger generation church and wait for this older generation church to die off so we can take their building. That's a very critical way of looking at it, and I understand that. And I'm not saying that's always the exact case. But it's almost as if we said, hey, this gap is not worth crossing, so let's go ahead and have old churches and have young churches, and let's not let them mix in. Do you understand how much that breaks God's heart? Because God is not a God that says, I want a church for this generation and a church for this generation, and I want a church for this racial ethnicity and a church for this racial ethnicity. God came to bridge those gaps so that a church might actually find unity across those standards. So already today, just by being here and being encouraging to this next generations of students that stand up and lead worship, you're doing what Jesus did. That's incredible. That's something that should be celebrated, something that should be noticed. When you look at that and say, it's not really the music that I personally would like, but I'm sure grateful God's raising up, raising up 18-year-olds to love him. And you encourage them, that's bridging gaps. We're bridging ethnic gaps. Sounds kind of crazy, but as I've lived here, I've, uh, I've realized more and more um, how many people there are in Portales that really like, don't even speak English. They only speak Spanish. We uh, were selling an old bedroom set, and we had this lady come to, to pick it up. And she got out of the car, and she says, hola. And I went, hablo inglés? And she goes, poquito. And I was like, hablo espanol, poquito. And then we had to use Google Translate from there on out. Like, that's, that's where we live. We live in a town where the vast, not majority, but a good population of people don't speak English. They speak Spanish. 
Like, what would it look like for the day where actually our conversations aren't about contemporary or traditional, but they're actually about how many songs do we lead in Spanish each week? Because that's what this congregation looks like, because it matches the gaps in this culture. What about political gaps? I mean, as, as we come into this upcoming political season, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it's going to feel like every conversation is like politically charged with that. Can I just encourage you to take, take a few minutes at the end of every day and, and keep a tally? I would be really interested in seeing the statistics of this. If any of you guys are like that organized data people, just keep a tally of how many conversations you have about whatever politicians and then compare that to how many conversations you have about Jesus. And I would just tell you, if you're having more conversations about politicians than you are having about Jesus, we're missing the point because Jesus came to bridge those gaps as well. How do we do this? We live like Jesus. And I would just say, what if First Baptist actually becomes one of the places in town where all these people from all these different walks of life come together in unity and worship Jesus? Now, that's never to say that we compromise on our doctrine or we compromise on the gospel. We know what that says. We're going to hold the text to be true no matter what. But one of the things that we can have liberty in, we look across the gap and we say, that's my brother. Or the things we can't have liberty in, we look across the gap and we say, that's actually not my enemy, that's someone God wants to redeem. What if First Baptist becomes that type of church? And you might be saying, Philip, you, you really don't understand Portales, New Mexico, do you? And I would just say, you really don't understand how Jesus works. Because if Jesus can bridge the gap between Roman centurion and Jewish, he can, he can bridge any gap that you might see. The question is, how do you respond in faith? So this is your chance to do that. How do you respond in faith? Father God, let us be a church that bridges these gaps. God, we don't want to be a church for this type of person or that type of person. God, we don't want to be a church that's known to be traditional or contemporary, young or old, rich or poor. God, that's not what we want to be about. God, we desperately want, when people look at First Baptist, the only thing they can say is, that church has something different about it. That there are gaps that nothing else can bridge that are bridged at that church. And God, we know that only happens through you. That only happens through Jesus. So as we pledge our faith to Jesus, God, if there's anyone in here that hasn't done that, let them come to do that this morning, to have the gap between their sin and redemption bridged totally once and for all. And for anyone that has, may they have the heart to look in their lives and see where their gaps may lie and say, I'm ready to bridge that for the sake of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.